Let's read from Luke 23, verses 33 through 49. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing his, up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we do ask that you would speak. Speak to us through words. Speak to us through a vision of the cross. May we see not just the event, but the meaning of Christ's death upon a tree. May perhaps you grant that some eyes, some heart is open to seeing this for the very first time this morning, that Christ died for us, the just for the unjust. May we look at Jesus upon a cross and may we find our salvation there. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said that there are only two certainties in life. What are they? Death and taxes. Death and taxes. You're right. Death and taxes. It's April, and tax day is almost upon us. I hope you're ready, because there is very little help I can offer you if you are not. You've got to bear that burden yourself. I can't help you much when it comes to the certainty of taxes, but 
when it comes to the certainty of death. That's another story. That's where the big story of the Bible can help us all. Because in this story, the burden is shifted from your shoulders onto the capable shoulders of another. It's a burden that another bears for you. A capable accountant can take on the burden of preparing your taxes, but rarely ever is their accountant generous enough to also take on the burden of paying your taxes. But when it comes to death, Jesus takes on both. Both the preparation and the payment. We've already seen the preparation. We saw two Sundays ago Jesus' anguish in the garden. Which is greater anguish than any accountant preparing to meet tax day deadlines. We saw last week the injustice of Jesus' trial which is more unjust than any loopholes in the tax code that lawmakers have devised. We've seen the preparation. We've seen the build-up to this day. Now we're going to see the payment. Death's tax has to be paid in full. Sin's fruit has to be tasted in its full bitterness. And it has to be tasted by one who has no transgressions of his own, obliging him to drink from death's cup for his own sin. The sting of death has to be absorbed by one who should have never been touched by it at all. The only innocent one takes upon himself willingly the wages of the world's sin. And the wages of sin is Death, 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 the bitter fruit of our rebellion against God. Death, the great enemy, the great separator of us from those whom we love. Death, the great problem, the final problem, which every person in every age and in every culture has desperately wanted to solve. We are surrounded by the problem of death. Death comes unexpectedly, as we saw in the recent tornadoes, Mississippi, Arkansas, which have left many dead, town demolished. Death comes tragically, as we saw in last week's school shooting in Tennessee, which has torn gaping holes in families and in a community. In our own church community, we lost Ramona Pogue to death just this last week. And many of you will be gathered at her graveside tomorrow. In my own family, I lost my precious grandmother, Roberta Winter, Grammy, last week, last Wednesday. And I'll be preaching her funeral in Florida the day after tomorrow. The problem of death is all around us. The problem is immense. The problem is personal. What can solve it? What answer is there 
to such a pervasive problem that touches us all. Where other philosophies, worldviews, and even religions fail to offer any hope or answer, the Bible does give us an answer. And it's not an answer we could have predicted. It's not a solution we would have seen coming. The Bible takes what looks like the very opposite of a solution, the very opposite of an answer. The Bible takes death's greatest victory, death's greatest conquest, and then turns that victory on its head, turns it upside down. The solution to death is found in a death. The gospel says that God himself came into this world and he came into this world to die. God came to taste death himself. And in so doing, he breaks forever death's power. He removes forever death's sting. He absorbs for us death's darkness. Not by somehow cheating death, like in other human stories. But in Jesus, we see God undoing death's power, sting, and darkness by fully absorbing it all. By fully tasting death's cup and draining every last bitter drop. The Bible says that Jesus tasted the bitterness of death for us all. So that death need not be bitter for us. Death need not be utter loss for us. Jesus has transformed it from utter loss into our greatest gain. Let's see the place. Let's observe the scene where God deals once for all with death in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to see five things this morning, five things in the story of the crucifixion. And the first is this. First, I want you to see the place of death, the place of his death. Look at verse 33. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals one on the right and the other on the left. Death is such a universal problem. In every place and in every age, death has been the great final problem, a problem for philosophers to deal with as well as pharmacists, for surgeons and scientists as well as witch doctors. And however hard we fought it off, And by whatever means we've used at our disposal, at a certain time and in a certain place, death brings each life to an end. That's why it feels right, although totally unexpected, for death to meet its end at a certain time and in a certain place. A place called the skull. A place called Calvary. In Latin, a place called Golgotha in Aramaic, a place 
you can get on a plane and go to today. It really is astounding that you can stand on a hillside where the Son of God was crucified. Where in real history, God in flesh tasted death for you. This is one of the things that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Christianity isn't a system of disembodied religious principles. It is an announcement of what God has done for us in real places, in real history. In a place called Golgotha, on a rocky hillside called the Skull, on a cross between two common criminals, God dealt with death for all time and for all of us. He did this in a real place, a real geographical location that you can stand on today, and many have stood on, having no idea what had taken place there. Having no idea what would take place there. The place called the skull is possibly, and I think is likely, the very same geographical spot where Abraham once stood to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Over 2,000 years before Jesus' crucifixion. And you know what happened then. God provided a substitute. A ram caught in the thicket to offer up in Isaac's place. Providing us with a picture of what would happen on the very same hill 2,000 years later. Jesus would be offered up in our place as the spotless Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb who would be the substitutionary sacrifice who bears our guilt and receives our punishment. All this happened in a place. The place of death. That's the first thing I want you to see. Here's the second. I want you to see the greatest need at death. The greatest need at death in verse 34. Verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In the midst of pain, in the midst of injustice, in the clutches of death, Jesus extends and expresses our greatest need. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. From the cross, Jesus extends forgiveness to his enemies. Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. What are they doing? They are in the middle of committing an evil greater than anyone could have ever imagined. God has come to us full of grace and truth, and we cruelly executed him. It's the greatest act 
of cosmic treason imaginable. They don't recognize it at the time. They don't know what they're doing. But ignorance alone is not enough to absolve the guilt. Forgiveness is needed. The forgiveness of the offended party. This is one of the things that got Jesus in trouble with the religious leaders of his day. Jesus would often declare someone's sins forgiven. And the Pharisees would protest, who can forgive sin but God alone? Which makes sense, right? If Joey wronged John, it would make no sense for me to say, I forgive you, Joey. That offense wasn't against me. It would actually be offensive for me to go around forgiving all the wrongs done to other people, not done to me. But this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus knows that God is always the offended party in any wrongdoing. It is his law that has been broken. It is his honor that has been slighted when you mistreat that person made in his image. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with everything you are, love him. Every moment you fail to live in line with that commandment, with that standard, you fail to give God what is his due. You sin. You miss the mark. You act unjustly. And you stand in need of forgiveness from the offended party. Even as Jesus is being crucified, he knows the evil of it all is ultimately an offense that God must forgive. Father, forgive them. They know not what they are doing. As death approaches for Jesus, he extends to us what we need most. In order to meet death without its sting, we need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. Yes, it's good to seek forgiveness from your friends, you've hurt your family, other folks that you've offended in this life. But your ultimate and greatest need is to seek forgiveness from the God your life has offended. The good news is that in this place, at this moment in time, Jesus purchases that forgiveness for you. On the cross, Jesus is paying the price you owe so that you can walk away debt-free. Like the generous accountant, Jesus is doing your taxes and seeing that you can never pay off the debt that you owe to the king. But, full of grace, he takes your burden upon his own shoulders and pays out of his own pocket the debt you owe, though it cost him his very life. Jesus knows that our greatest need at death is forgiveness. And that's exactly what his death purchases for us.
I want you to see next in verses 35 through 38, the mocking of his death. The mocking of his death. Look at verse 35. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, they knew this. Why? Because there was an inscription above him saying, This is the king of the Jews. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but I do want you to see this. I want you to see just how twisted sin can make us. I want you to see it here so that you won't be surprised when you see it out there. This is just how twisted people's perspective can be. Standing by a scene of torture. And execution. We see people here openly mock and hurl insults. They mock a man who they see as helpless in the face of death. The irony here is that this is even more warped and wrong than it first appears. This is like mocking Superman in handcuffs. Have you seen that image of, I think it's Henry Cavill as Superman in handcuffs? We all know how foolish that is, right? You know how foolish that image is. The handcuffs are only there because Superman allows it. Jesus is only held to that cross because he allows it. And he stays there. Even as the mocking and taunts come saying that he can't do anything about it. Jesus intentionally stays there amidst all the sinful, foolish taunting. Church, we ought to still expect the same kind of foolishness today. People will mock. People will sneer. People will make light, even when death presses in all around. Following Jesus looks like staying the course as the storms of mockery blow around us. Following Jesus looks like not returning insult for insult. Or having to prove yourself right. Did Jesus have the ability to come down off the cross? Yes. But did he have to answer every foolish accusation? Did he have to prove himself right to every mocker? No. Christian, you don't either. Don't let anyone taunt or mock you out of following your Savior in this. Even at the point of death, in his greatest moment of pain, Jesus rose above the mocking of the world. And in following him, you can too.
Here's a fourth thing I want you to see. In verses 39 through 43, I want you to see next the two responses to death. The two responses to death. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly. But we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me. In paradise. These two real life criminals crucified on either side of Jesus teach us something important. These are two responses, two responses to death. To give you a slightly broader picture than the one Luke paints in this account, the other gospel writers tell us that initially both of these criminals join in hurling abuse at at Jesus. They both join the crowd at first. They both stand in exactly the same position of guilt and sin, but at some point, maybe around the time of verse 44, when darkness falls over the whole land, at some point, one of the crucified criminals has a change of heart. He returns to a place of fearing God, verse 40, recognizing his wrongs and Jesus' righteousness, verse 41. Then he makes a statement of faith, a statement of faith in Jesus as the future king over God's kingdom. Verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. We see in this criminal All these vital elements of salvation. There's a humbling before God. There's an owning of sin. There's a recognizing of Christ's righteousness. And finally, there's a desperate plea for mercy. For a merciful place in Jesus' kingdom. In other words, we see in this criminal repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. The exact response Jesus is always calling for in every message, every sermon. Repent and believe. The exact response we're to have for Jesus to be our Savior. So, at the 11th hour, no, even later than the 11th hour, the one second to midnight, this man repents and calls out to Jesus. And Jesus responds, truly, I say to you, today, you shall be with me in paradise. At the very last moment, God can still save. At the very last moment, pardon can still come. And the doors of paradise open. It's been said that God saved one 
of the criminals on the cross so that none might despair. So that none might despair that it's too late. It is not too late. Not for this man and not for you. God saved one of the criminals upon the cross so that none might despair. But God only saved one so that none might presume. You can't presume that you'll come to the end of your life and repentance will be there. You can't presume and say, I'll just wait until I'm on my deathbed. Then I'll get right with God. Then I'll repent. Repentance may not be there one second to midnight. You presume it will be, but it may not. You may not get the chance. Your end may come quickly, unexpectedly, like the tragedies we saw in Mississippi and Tennessee this past week. You may not see death coming until it is too late. That's why the Bible says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. The day of salvation is always today. Don't presume upon tomorrow. It may not come. It may not come for you. But while the good news is in your ears, today, embrace Jesus. Embrace him as a savior. Repent and embrace Christ as king in your heart today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Remember, God saved one of the criminals upon the cross so that none might despair. But God only saved one so that none might presume. I want you to see finally this morning the moment of his death. The moment of his death, verses 44 through 46. Verse 44, now it was about the sixth hour. And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. What's happening here? What's happening in these final moments? In these final hours, darkness falls at midday. Darkness falls over the land, and it's pointing to a spiritual reality that's happening. In a moment unlike any other moment in history, God the Father turns his back on God the Son. The Father forsakes the relationship of eternal love that he has always enjoyed with Jesus. And as darkness falls, God's wrath for our sin also falls upon his Son. Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb, the one standing in our place, bearing our punishment, absorbing every drop of God's just Anger against us. This moment in time, this moment tasting the full sting and full fruit of death 
is at the very heart of the gospel. The New Testament says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand that? This is the great exchange of the gospel. He made him, God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin to be sin, to become sin, to take on our sin so that in exchange, he takes our sin and our punishment and in exchange, he offers to us his righteousness, his perfect life accredited to your account. You take it. You stand before God now clothed in the righteousness and perfect obedience of Jesus And he takes the sin. He takes the wrath. He takes the punishment. Notice this. As Jesus completes his work of bearing our sin, an important thing happens. The veil in the temple, which was there to keep sinful man out of the most holy place, the holy of holies, the place that symbolized God's presence, that veil which separated man from God was torn into. Matthew says it was torn into from top to bottom, illustrating that this wasn't an act of man reaching up to God, but an act of God reaching down to man. When we could do nothing to make ourselves right with God, when we could do nothing to get to God, God came to us. God toward the veil that separated us from himself. And that is incredible news. That is good news. The veil is torn and death has been transformed. Through faith in Jesus, death now ushers us through the veil into the presence of God. To be absent from the body really is to be present with the Lord. Jesus breathed his last saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And because of him, we can take our last breath with the same confidence. In the confidence that the loving hands of God will be there to embrace us and welcome us home. But it is only through Jesus that we gain such a welcome into God's presence. Only through his death do we find life everlasting. As we bring things to a close this morning, what's your reaction to all this? There are several reactions recorded for us here. There's the reaction of the Roman centurion in verse 47 who changes his heart and his perspective in the moment of Jesus' death. But there's also the reaction of the crowd in verse 48 who walk away remorseful, beating their breasts. We see here that not all responses are alike. What's yours? What is your heart response to the story of God dealing with death? J.R.R. Tolkien famously said this about the gospel. He said, There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true. And there is none which so many skeptical men have accepted as true 
on its own merits. For the art of it has that supremely convincing tone of primary art. That is, it's not the kind of story people would create, but it feels like part of creation itself. To reject it, to reject this story, leads either to sadness or to wrath. Now, I don't want anyone walking away sad this morning, walking away beating your breast, seeing in Jesus only another tragic story about death. It's victory. It's inevitability. This is not a tragic story. Come back next week on Easter Sunday, and you'll see how this story removes the tragedy from death. I don't want anyone to walk away sad this morning, and I don't want anyone to walk away angry, offended by what this story implies, that you are not good in God's eyes. You are not good enough, that this is what you deserve, this punishment Jesus took, that you need a substitute, you need a savior in order to be right with God. Those implications offend every self-righteous bone in your body, every self-righteous instinct we have. You could walk away angry because of that. You could walk away sad like the crowd in verse 48. Or you could walk away rejoicing. Rejoicing, believing that all Jesus did in his death he did for you. Let's pray. Father, as we have seen the place of death, we have seen the greatest crime, the greatest act of treason ever done. Your son came to us and we crucified him. May we also see behind the veil your good plan. May we also see a Savior willingly standing in our place, absorbing every drop of our punishment. May we see death sting fully taken by another for us. He is the one who does it all and pays our debt. May we see in Jesus a Savior that we joyfully embrace. May we do it now, today. May today be the day of salvation in our hearts. May we embrace a Savior as king over our lives, the only one who could pay our debt, the only one who could tear the veil that separates us and usher us into God's presence. May our hearts repent, owning our sin But may we also rejoice, believing in such a Savior this morning. May that be our heart's response to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.